Turn, if you would, to the 19th chapter of the book of Matthew. We hit a milestone at my family this week. Our uh, baby child got her driver's license. <laughs> I, I no longer have to teach anyone how to drive. <sighs> the things we do. Last week, we started chapter 19. We talked about divorce. A very difficult subject because it uh, touches all of our lives in some form or fashion. It was interesting, the stories I heard after class. Monday, I spent some time and wrote three pages of notes about redoing that lesson, but I'm not going to do it. (laughs) It is too difficult for me. So, picking up in verse 13 of chapter 19. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. We actually had a discussion several weeks ago when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus grabbed a child and said, Here it is. It's not you. It's those who humbly recognize that they cannot do it themselves. So you know what's happening here. The people are bringing their children, and the disciples are ticked off. Why do we have all these kids running around? The story of my life, right? (laughs) What are they all doing here? I mean, we have serious kingdom work to do. We are going to build the kingdom of God. We've got to get these kids out of the way because they're distracting us from our mission. I mean, we've seen this over and over again, right, in the lives of the disciples. They're all struggling to find out where they are in this new pecking order, and they want to be top dog, and here Jesus is wasting his time with kids. And Jesus rebukes them and says, shut up. Well, that's a loose translation. He says, stop it. The kingdom of heaven is made up of children who recognize their need for me. Don't hinder the children from coming. At this point, we can have a long discussion about children's ministries and etc. But we need to acknowledge the fact that children's hearts are open to God. And we need to be aware of that, sensitive to that, and we need to be willing to commit ourselves to fulfilling that need. So Jesus says, here's what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom is not full of people seeking to be number one. The kingdom is full of children of God. So, continuing in verse uh, 16. And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There is no more important question. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we had a lesson where Jesus asked a question. The question that he asked his disciples was, Who do people say that I am? And we discussed the fact that all of us have to address that question. At some point in our lives, we have to deal with who Jesus is, or was, or where he fit into history, what is he today, we need to deal with that. But when it comes to our own personal lives, 
The question we need to deal with is what does it mean? How do I, what do we need to do to inherit eternal life? Why would this young man ask this question of Jesus? There's a couple of possible answers. The first answer is he could be trying to trap Jesus. We've seen that before. You know, the Pharisees come and say, but what about taxes? What about this? What about that? Because they know they can trap him. In fact, last week's lesson about divorce was actually started when the Pharisees came to him and said, what does it mean when Moses allows the people to have a divorce, but this, what does that mean? Because they wanted to get him in trouble with Herod, just like John the Baptist had gotten in trouble. I don't think that's the case here, though. I don't think he's here to trap Jesus. I think he really wants to know. The second option is that he's here for an intellectual debate. Let's have a discussion. Let's you know, list all of our premises and let's have an argument about what it means to get eternal life. But I don't think he's here for that either. I think he really wants to know. He really wants to know what it takes to get eternal life. I think this person is an honest seeker after the truth. And this is great. I mean, let's face it. How many of you in your life have had an evangelistic opportunity so obvious that it just walks up and asks you the question? Hey, you, come here. What do I have to do to be saved? You'd go, wow, a perfect convert. I've got him right where I need him. I mean, generally, we have to drag it out of people, right? Here the guy is asking Jesus. And Jesus does a horrible job of evangelism. Oh. That can't be right, right? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is the question everybody needs to address. What is it in this man's life that prompted him to ask this question? I mean, what is it today that prompts us to ask the question, What is it that I need to do to inherit eternal life? There's some event in our life. There's some cause that drives us to recognize that this is not all there is. There has to be more. There has to be something beyond this. And if there's something beyond this, how do I get there? And that's the question he's asking. We know from the Luke passage that he is a ruler of some sort within the community. He is the rich, young ruler is the title we normally give to this passage. We'll find out in a moment that he is, in fact, very rich. And he comes to Jesus and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if we had more time, I would actually ask you the question, If somebody came up to you and asked this question, how would you answer that question? 
Well, my first observation would be, you're asking the wrong question. You don't have to do anything. It's all grace from beginning to end. But Jesus didn't answer it that way. You know, I'd want to do, you know, the four spiritual laws or evangelism explosion questions. If you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? Teresa knows all about that. Somebody asked her those questions and she gave all the right, wrong answers. (laughs) And they led her to Christ. That's what we would do. What does Jesus do? Why do you ask, and he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. There's only one who is good. The guy was just being polite. Good teacher. What must I do? And he says, why are you asking me that question? Now, there's kind of a trick to this answer of his. There's only one person who is good. Who is that? God. God is the standard by which goodness is determined. We use the word goodness in a lot of different ways. You know, that was a good dinner. That was a good football game because our team won. That was a good this, that. But when we talk about moral goodness, God is the only standard. We can talk in relative terms about being, this person being good or that person being bad, But in reality, God is the standard. Now, what this rich young ruler doesn't know is that he is addressing God. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So when he's talking to Jesus, he thinks he's just making a polite statement, good teacher, when Jesus knows that he is God and is the standard of right and wrong. So right off the bat, he addresses the man kind of, I'm not going to say snarky, he he asked the question, why do you call me good? What do you mean when you use that statement? Because he wants him to understand where he is and his necessity for dealing with the sin in his life. So, Good? Why do you call me that? Why do you do that? Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, how many of you have ever shared the gospel with someone and they ask you, what do I need to be, do to be saved? And you answer, you need to keep all the commandments. Oh, he's just not doing very well here. Why does he ask that question? Because you see, until we acknowledge that we truly are sinners, we are never going to understand the gospel. Now, Jesus' answer is not wrong. You can be saved. You ready for this? Here's heresy about to fall upon you. You can be saved by keeping the law. You just have to do it from the day you're born until the day you die, and you can't break it once. And you're in. That's all it takes. How many of us can do that? How many of us know at this stage in our lives that there is no way 
We have in our head the list of things that we've messed up in. We replay it over and over again. But this rich young ruler has come to Jesus and said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Because he's starting a discussion with this young man to get this young man to the place that he realizes his need for something more. He said to him, which ones? Which commandments do I need to follow? You know, you and I, when we hear the word commandment, we automatically think of the Ten Commandments. Given in the book of Exodus, Moses goes up on the mountain, he comes down, he's got the stone tablets, breaks copy one, goes back up, gets copy two, comes down, gives it to the people. The Ten Commandments. But if you're a good Jewish person of this time, you acknowledge the fact that there's the Ten Commandments, then there's the other several hundred laws that are in the Old Testament, then there are the other several hundred laws that the Pharisees have tacked on on top of that, so you have laws upon laws upon laws, and he wants to know, what's the list? You give me the list, and I'll follow the list. And that's the way we are. Now, what we normally do, jumping ahead here, what we normally do is we find the list, we start scratching off the ones we're not interested in, and we think that if we fulfill the other ones, we're okay. Okay, that's just the way we think. But Jesus says, keep the commandments. He gives the obvious question, which ones? Give me the list and I'll follow the list. Whatever the list is that it takes for me to get into heaven, I'm going to follow it. Okay? Jesus answered, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of these but the last one are from the Ten Commandments. The last one is given as a summary of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, why did he pick this particular group? Maybe it was just a random list. Okay? Don't kill anybody. Okay? Don't steal anybody's stuff. Okay? Don't bear false witness. Okay? Honor your father and mother. Okay? I can do that. And love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I'm good. What does the man say? The young man said to Jesus, All these have I kept. What do I lack? Now, at this point, some of the commentaries will say, Here we see the man's problem. Pride. Pride is saying, I've kept the law. I actually cut the guy a little more slack. I think by all outward standards, he's kept these. He hasn't murdered anybody. He hasn't borne false witness. He has probably been very polite and respectful to his parents. And to the best of his understanding, he's loved his neighbor as himself. Now, we're not getting into Jesus's interpretation of these laws that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, what? If you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Oh, shoot. 
because he's taken the external action and he's moved it back into a condition of the heart. And he says, if you hate somebody, you've killed somebody. He doesn't go into that right here. But the guy says, I have done these things. I have followed this list. What do I still lack? That's an interesting observation. He knows that something's missing. He knows that as a good Jewish kid, he is doing what is expected of him by the Jewish community, and he knows that he doesn't have eternal life. You ready for this? I don't care what list you're following. You can have the strictest list that was ever made. You can have one that you threw together some weekend. Whatever. When the Holy Spirit moves in your heart, you're going to know there's something missing. That just keeping that list doesn't solve your problem. The guy really wants to know what he needs to do. The version of this in Mark says that Jesus looks at him and he loves him. Now, at this point, he's already messed up the whole evangelical presentation (laughs) by bringing in this thing about the commandments. But at this point, would you just say, why don't you come to our church and spend some time with us, and in a couple of years, we'll work it all out? Isn't that what you ought to do at this point? But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus just ran him off. I mean, Jesus had such an opportunity to get this top-notch guy onto his team. I mean, he's got these 12 disciples who, let's face it, aren't the top guys in in the community. And here he's got this young, influential, rich guy, and he runs him off. Why does he do that? Because Jesus is interested in the condition of your heart. And he knows where this guy's heart is. And he looks at him and he says, You want to be perfect? Let me tell you what you need to do. Go sell everything that you have. Give to the poor and come and follow me. That's what you have to do. Now, at this point, a lot of us are panicking. (laughs) Because we're thinking, this verse is telling me that I need to sell everything that I have 
and give to the poor and come and follow Jesus. And guess what? Maybe it is telling you that. But maybe not. Because what Jesus knows and what we oftentimes don't know when we're sharing the gospel with someone, Jesus knows the condition of his heart. You know, we look at external things. That's all we can do. We look at external things. Jesus can peer into your heart and know where your heart is. And he knows that in this individual's life, money is the idol. Which of the Ten Commandments did he not include in his discussion where he says, here are the commandments you need to follow? Well, first off, he didn't include the last one about coveting, which oftentimes deals with money. But he also didn't include the first one. You shall have no other gods beside me. And this individual, his material possessions were his idol. Now, I just let you off the hook. But I didn't really mean to let you off the hook. Because if money was his idol that he needed to walk away from in order to follow Jesus, what that means is that in the life of everyone, there is something that is standing between us and God. There is some idol. It could be money. And in fact, in our society, that's probably at the top of most of our list. We've had this discussion in here before. There was a book that I read years ago, Raising uh, Children in a Self-Indulgent World. And it talked about the fact that we live in a rich society. And he says, you don't believe that, right? Let me give you three questions. Do you have a choice of what you have for lunch today? Do you have access to your own mode of transportation? Even if it's a bicycle. And I forgot what the third question is. But it's equally similar. Do you have a second set of clothing? If you can answer yes to two of those three questions, in the eyes of the world, you're rich. Guess what? You're rich. And Jesus looks at this rich man and says, sell it. Give to the poor. Now, just to clarify, he doesn't say give it all to the poor, but he does say have it available to give to the poor. Show that that is not your idol. So what is our idol? I don't know. Money? Comfort? Affluence? The stuff that money buys? Power? Peace? Prosperity? Family? Our relationships? What is the idol that we are not willing to walk away from in order to follow after Christ? Take your idol and get rid of it, is what Jesus is telling him. Take your idol, set it aside, put it somewhere that you demonstrate that it is no longer the idol in your life, and then come and follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? 
It means we emulate him. It means that we follow his commands. It means we follow his instructions. We go back to the Sermon on the Mount and it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are this. And we go, wait a minute, that doesn't jive with our modern society. I'll do something else. That's the way our minds work. And we're not following after Jesus. What is the idol and are we willing to set it aside in order to follow Jesus? And it says this rich young man was not willing to do that. Which to me is fascinating. As I said, the passage in Mark says that before Jesus asked this question, that he loved him. He looked at him and he says, here is someone seeking after the truth. Wow, this isn't one of those lousy Pharisees trying to trap me again. This is a young man who really wants to do it. I just love it. But he loves him too much to let him stay worshiping his idol. That's what Jesus does. And he looks him in the eye and he says, get rid of it. And the man walks away. You can just imagine Jesus going, so sorry that the man walked away. And Jesus said to his disciples, he like he turned to his disciples and said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Is this a condemnation of being rich? No, it isn't. What it is, is a recognition that financial well-being tends to produce in us this idea that we can do it on our own. Remember that proverb? I always like this proverb. God, don't make me rich and don't make me poor. If I'm rich, I'll think I don't need you. If I'm poor, I will steal and I will defame your name. Avoid these two. What that has always taught me is that there are sins that are prevalent at each end, every end of the economic scale. It's not like one is virtuous and the other is not. It's just different sins. And the sin of the rich that they are, have a tendency toward is the idea that I don't need, I don't need anything else. That's why it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's just hard. You can't do it. Well, maybe you can't do it. Keep listening. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. You have a needle that's got an eye in it. <laughs> you have a needle that has an eye in it, and you have a piece of thread. Let's start easy, okay? 
Let's work our way up to camels. <laughs> I can sit there for an hour trying to get that piece of thread through that eye of that needle. My beloved wife, who sews all the time, takes that piece of thread and goes, shook, and there it is. I don't know how she does it. But she can do it. Why? Because the eye of the needle is made for the thread to go through the eye of the needle. Piece of cake, right? Here's a camel. <laughs> for the audience that he's dealing with, the camel would have been one of the largest animals that they would have been personally familiar with. You could have just as easily said a horse or a goat or another human being. Here's the question for you. Take the camel and put it through the eye of the needle. How do you do that? I'll give you a quick answer. You don't. The camel is not made to go through the eye of the needle. It just won't do it. And Jesus is saying it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for... Go ahead. There is some discussion about whether that's true or not. <laughs> yeah. I've heard it a long time, too. I think he's talking about a sewing needle here, though. That's his picture. And you go look at that and you go, I can't do that. It's, it's well, what does the disciples say? When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded. I like that phrase, greatly astounded. They were shocked. Saying, who then can be saved? If this is how hard it is, Here's the rich man, he's the camel, here's the eye of the needle, go through the camel. I'm not that rich, so all I've got is a goat. Goat through the eye of the camel, and it's not going to go through either. And the disciples look at him and go, but the rich people are the guys that society looks up to. You know? Fiddle on the roof, right? If I were a rich man. And at the end of it, he says, I sit all day long with the elders talking and showing, and if you're rich, they think you really know the answers. They looked up to the rich. They looked up to those who had power and influence. They looked up to this rich young ruler. And they said, if he can't get in, what's the hope for any of us? It's impossible. If the top dog of society cannot get into the kingdom of heaven, we're all doomed. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and in all sincerity says, follow the commandments. Every one of them. Gives him a list. I followed them all. I'm in. But I know I'm not in. I know that I lack something. 
then Jesus looks at him and he finds that idol that is in his life and he says, there. It's like there's that sore and he pokes it and he says, there's the problem. And the disciples said, but if he can't be saved, none of us can be saved. And Jesus said, bingo! You figured it out. What must I do to be saved? Why is it that today, when somebody wants to know the gospel message, we don't tell them to follow the commandments? Because we know they can't do it. Now, it may take some effort to convince them that they can't do it. But if I can't do it by following the list, my long list, my medium list, my short list, if I can't do it by following the list, then I'm toast. I can't get into the kingdom. And God says, bingo, you figured it out. Because the moment you realize that it is impossible for you to keep the law from the day you're born till the day you die, in outward behavior, in the condition of your heart, once you realize that, then God can save you. The Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the first Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who acknowledge they cannot do it on their own. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the way that all of us are saved. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, is he just talking about rich people and camels at this point? No. He's talking about every single one of us. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what is the answer that Paul gives to the jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No discussion about commandments. No discussion about anything. What's the difference? Because that jailer knew his life was over. Because the gates were open, the prisoners were leaving. And he was going to be killed. He knew where he stood. And that was at the bottom of the ladder. This rich young ruler still believed that his money and his possessions would somehow, some way, Get him into the kingdom of heaven. It would have been easy, easy for Jesus to say, write out a large check. That's all it will take. Add another zero to last week's check. And the guy, I believe the guy would have done it. It wasn't a problem of the dollar amount. It was the problem of getting rid of the idol Whatever it is, get rid of it. But he loved that idol. That idol is what gave him influence in the community, and he couldn't get rid of it. He just loved it. And he left and refused to follow Jesus. 
And the disciples go, wow. What's there left for anybody? Well, what's left for anybody is the same thing that's left for that rich young man, which is the grace of God. Because with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? You know, Jesus is exceptionally patient with Peter. <laughs> At this point, I would have just slapped the fool out of him. I'm, I'm being personally, right? I believe Jesus is genuinely sad that this rich young ruler, whom he loved, walked away and didn't acknowledge that he needed to deal with his idol. So I I mean, I have this picture, you know, Jesus is just going, that's bad. But you know, with God, anything is possible. And then Peter goes, ooh, ooh, I gave up everything to follow you. What did he give up? He didn't have the top job in the world, right? I think he was a fisherman, right? He walked away from, it wasn't even his boat. It was his father's boat. (laughs) What did he give up? Well, let's be honest. He gave up everything that he had. Let's be honest. When Jesus said, come and follow me, he dropped the nets. You see, we think he didn't have much. The rich young ruler had a lot. So that's the difference. No, that's not the difference. Because you see, in our lives, it's just as difficult to get rid of the little things that we have as to get rid of the big things. I mean, that's, it is a condition of the heart. And when Jesus said, come and follow me, Peter dropped the nets and came. So Peter really wants to know the answer to the question. We've given up everything. What do we get out of it? Now, I still would have wanted to slap him around. But it is an honest question. Do you ever, maybe you're not like me, do you ever sit in the dark at home thinking, is it really worth it? Maybe you don't do that. I did this and things aren't turning out well or they're turning out just so-so, is it really worth it to do it God's way? Now, that comes from a lack of faith. Remember, Hebrews, faith, believing that God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. But sometimes in difficult circumstances, we need to know, and Peter asked the question, is it worth it? Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
but many who are first will be last, and the last first. What are you going to get out of it? I walked away from the wealth, whatever level of wealth it was. I walked away from relationships. I walked away from doing the things the way that I thought they ought to be done. What do I get out of it? And Jesus says, everything is going to be repaid a hundredfold. Everything that you lost. What did they lose? Well, we've had this discussion before. Peter's going to get killed. The other disciples are going to get killed. They're going to lose their lives. They're going to be beat up. They're going to be tortured. They're going to be killed for the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus tell him? You haven't given up anything that's not going to be repaid a hundredfold. But what's the last line? Many who are first will be last and the last first. They've been begging to get the answer of where they're going to be in the pecking order. In fact, we're going to see this in a couple more weeks all over again. When we get to the kingdom, who's going to be the number two dog? Okay, we'll accept the fact, Jesus, you're going to be the number one dog. But who's going to be the number two dog? Who's going to be the number three? Who's going to be the number four? They have been begging Jesus to answer this question. And here he comes and he gives them a good answer from their perspective. You are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow, that sounds impressive. Now you're going to be dead when this happens. That's the downside of it. In the world to come. That's the answer they wanted, except for the dead part. But then he comes and says, last and first in human mindset, it's all backwards. They really did believe that this rich young ruler represented the peak of godliness because he was rich and he was a nice guy. He was a nice guy. And Jesus is saying, take that standard and turn it on its head. Because many of those who you think are at the top of the pecking order are going to be at the bottom of the pecking order. Don't waste your time worrying about where you're going to be. Trust God to take care of that. And guess what? I am promising you I will take care of it. Nothing that you've lost isn't going to be repaid. Everything that you've given up for me, I will repay it. I mean, just, just envision this, okay? You all know the picture. Either your children or your grandchildren, they get a present and they get so excited about the present and, wait, they get excited about the box. They get about, excited about the trappings. And I sit there and I think, gosh, I've given up all this stuff and I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going, it was the wrapping paper. I was so worried about the wrapping paper. When God has promised us more than we can ever hope for or imagine. So, 
Peter is sitting there. I'd still slap him around. But I do understand his question. Is it worth it? And Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, it's worth it. Would it have been worth it for that rich young ruler to take everything that he had, sell it all, give it all to the poor, and follow Jesus? What would his life have looked like if he had done that? He would have been sleeping on the ground. He would have been walking. He would have been eating whatever people gave him. And at some point, his master would have been killed. And at some point, his master would have been raised from the dead. And he would go around the world spreading the gospel. And they probably would have killed him. This is all speculation. But that's a likely outcome. And then what? He would be in heaven, enjoying riches beyond his wildest imagination because he gave it all up to follow Jesus. What is the old sentence that Jim Elliot used to say? He is no fool who gives up that, that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. The rich young ruler, Jesus loved him. It isn't that he, Jesus was trying to poke him in the eye. It wasn't that he was trying to put him in his place. It wasn't that he was trying to humiliate him. He loved him. But he walked away. The disciples, to their credit, when Jesus walked up to Matthew, Levi, and said, forget this tax collecting stuff, come follow me. Matthew got up. And he followed him. What does this mean to us? Does it mean you're supposed to go home and clean out your bank account? Yeah, maybe. I'm not going to tell you one way or the other. If that's what God tells you to do, do it. But I don't want to. Well, then you've got a problem. What does God want from us? He wants us to take our idols and set them aside. And he wants us to follow him. What does it mean to follow him? I've got an idea of what it means to follow him. I'm not sure I could tell you what it meant for you to follow him. It's like Abraham. God says, come with me and I'll take you to a place. I'm not going to tell you where, but I'm going to take you to a place and I'll tell you when you're there. That would be hard for me to do. I like maps. I like a destination on that map. I like to know where I'm going to have dinner. <laughs> Let's face it. But when Jesus asked the disciples, come follow me, one after the other, they dropped their nets, they le le left their tax booth, and they came and they followed him. Did they ask, where's dinner? Yeah, they probably did some point in there. We are human, by the way. But they left behind the world that they knew in order to follow him. That's the message that we have out of this lesson. Are we willing to do that? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that with us salvation may be impossible, but that with you and your grace it is possible for all of us 
For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.